Hello and welcome to the Commotion Mobility Podcast, your regular glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, Director of Strategy for LA Commotion, and this time around I'm joined by Martin McMullen, who's the Director of the Connected Journeys Program at the New Zealand Transportation Agency. Um, Martin was a, was a guest of ours at LA Commotion this past fall and, uh, and is leading a really fascinating group in Auckland, which you will never, never know about unless you visit Auckland, as I did about a year ago at their invitation, um, where they're actually implementing mobility as a service, the holy grail that we all talk about in this sort of world, um, but no one has seen really examples of outside of a handful of fins. Um, so it's our delight to have Martin on this week to talk about uh, his work uh, down in New Zealand and also sort of you know where the mobility landscape is headed, particularly with Uber and Lyft headed towards um, uh, you know initial public offerings and their pivots to sort of mobility providers. Um, so with that, Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Greg, honored to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I should add, you're on vacation at the moment, so thank you for joining us in, uh, as opposed to a frigid northeast where I'm at, you're in a, a delightfully warm Auckland in the summer. Um, so thank you for carving out the time. But um, I guess it's a way of sort of queuing up our audience um, who are probably less familiar with um, you know, the New Zealand scene than they are with the San Francisco Bay and, and scooter mania. Um, can you talk a bit about sort of your team and your work there, and particularly about sort of the, the Moss pilots you guys have actually implemented? Yeah, sure. So um, the Connected Journeys team is about 18 months old now. And really what we were created to do is help accelerate New Zealand's transition to more sustainable, um, safer transport choices for our citizens and, you know, the large amount of visitors that we have visiting New Zealand every year. And um, one of the meaty challenges that I was asked to look at initially was, you know, how to solve the problem of congestion. So, you know, starting off with the easy one. It was... Uh, you know, quite a daunting task. And really what we went out and did and started to speak to people. And ultimately what we found is people didn't feel like they had a choice away from using the motor vehicle. The public transport system was, you know, evolving and it wasn't quite as reliable or um, as convenient as it could be. They didn't really feel that they had the ability to make alternative choices around walking and cycling and, and multimodal journeys. And that's really where we stumbled across something that we didn't really know as mobile as a service at the time. We just wanted to give all of our customers all the choices in one place and the ability to book and pay for them. So we, we tested that and we validated it. And as we went on that journey, you know, we've had a big areas of discovery by just starting some of these things. It's, it's always difficult from a, a policy point of view as you know, you've got to look so far into the future and make really long-term decisions where I find that, you know, by doing, you know, canary tests and starting small, but thinking big, it allows you to unpeel um, and understand the problem a little bit in more detail, opposed to trying to chuck a dart at a dartboard from, you know, half a mile away sometimes in policy, trying to guess what the next 30 years looks like is very difficult. Well, interesting. So how did you, how did you actually build it out? So you could talk a little bit more about the, yeah, the, the pilots that you created, because you actually created your own apps, which I think, you know, a lot of uh, transportation agencies have shied away from that approach, right? You know, not only just open data advocates, but, you know, the notion that no one wants another app and they're never going to use it. And you actually got some fairly solid adoption out of it. So how did, how did you go about sort of, you know, creating it, uh, a min an MVP of a sort of minimal viable proposition of that and, and then seeding it? Yeah, so um, what we did is we did some, you know, handwritten artboards on some nice pieces of paper. 
And um, we literally went out onto the streets, two or three of us, into Queenstown and into Auckland, and we walked the streets and pulled random people over. And and for an introvert, for me, that was, that was a great learning experience. And say, you know, hey, how do you move around? Would you use this application if it was an application? And you explain to them what it would do and how it would suit their lives. And we really started to build a business case of user feedback, um, which we then went away and turned into you know, high-resolution app boards using tools like Envision, prototypes, and then started to build um, a bit of a use case around it, around user adoption, behavior change, getting that modal shift to write a really um, high-level strategic business case around the, uh, creating a concept of what we call mobility marketplace or now called mobility operating system, which um, we asked for a very small amount of money to do some pilots. And, um, you know, that was approved. The team kicked into action. But the pilots were really about two things. Um, one is validating that commercial operators would want to put their services into the marketplace. And secondly, that we could manage privacy in a, in a safe manner so we weren't, we weren't tracking and storing massive amounts of historical records of people movements across cities because as a government agency, we don't want to be in that space. Um, so they, they were the two reasons that we wanted to test the pilot. And then... Um, we didn't really want to do the application. The challenge that we had is we, we flirted with a few um, global ride-sharing companies about you know doing partnerships. That, that didn't quite go when they saw the opportunity. They wanted to do it all rather than just provide the app. And um, also the local app application development community here couldn't really move quick enough for us to deliver the pilots in the time that we wanted to deliver them. We wanted this to be quick. We wanted to show the business that we could get things out of the door quickly rather than talking about things for years, uh, you know, very iteratively at a low cost. So in the end, we decided it'd be cheaper just to buy, hire some developers in and set up a little bit of a development team and, and, and build the apps on the platform. This is amazing. This sounds like a, like a fairy tale as far as sort of, you know, U.S. public sector innovation is concerned. Um, we're going to come back to, you know, why the, the sort of a, the sort of a underachieving history of public-private partnerships there when it comes to mobility as a service. But I would ask two questions that come out of that is, is number one, how, how did you solve the privacy problem with building these kinds of apps? Because, you know, that's where a lot of these efforts have foundered. And then second, where, you know, where, how has the program evolved and where is it today? And, you know, what did you learn from the initial pilots and how do you plan to scale it? Because so many transit agencies, Transport agencies want to become these mobility managers, um, but you know they found it obviously hard because of politics, inertia, and so forth. Yeah, uh, let me just start with the first question. Um, I'll start with the second one; it's more interesting. <laughs> so I think it is really important that we you have to be engaged around these types of partnerships, and it is difficult. If it was easy, we would already be doing it. But fundamentally, what you are creating here is you are creating the future of your transport agency just in a digital manner. Um, so you can either sit back and lose that mandate or that credibility or, you know, relevance to your customers, or actually you've just got to get in there and get involved. You know, cities, states and countries have really got to take ownership about what transport system that they want in the future, how they can enable equality, how we can build sustainability into it, how we can give access to those who haven't got it. And if we don't sit back and step up into that area, it's going to be a very difficult future for people to move around cities um, and, you know, live prosperous lives and, you know, get good environmental sustainable outcomes. So how do we approach it is 
first thing we went to is we got put into a front of a load of policy people. And it was right, okay, we need to spend a lot of time here focusing on two things, policy and standards. And my first question was, if we really are talking about a marketplace, why do we need to regulate it at the start? It is, you know, the commercial, the transit operators should get some value from it. The consumer should get value out of it. And we as a government agency that invests a lot of money in transportation, we should get value out of it. You know, understanding our systems, understanding, you know, what's being utilized and what isn't and where the behavior change is happening. When you factor in, you know, a longer term roadmap, and this is out of scope at the moment, is, you know, the impact of things like variable road user charging and user pays transit that um, and subscription services. They're also really important to this future and also digital regulation. So you've got to bake all that into these platforms. And then our view is, you know, so that's the policy piece. It's the policy question is already been answered. What we're doing here is the same thing that we did 120 years ago is everyone wanted to build roads for their automotive vehicles. What we said is, hang on a minute, let's get a systematic approach to this that's consistent and we just don't have roads everywhere going from point A to point B and, you know, somebody else doing another one to point A to point B. Let's connect them up. And we, you know, that then, then those same roads were opened up to the private sector for you to drive your car on and for you to run your businesses on. But at the same time, the public sector used it for transit and other purposes. Then we started to see the proliferation of garages and workshops and malls and hot, hot drive-throughs and takeaways and whole new industries being built around these roads. All we're doing today is exactly that. We're just doing it in a digital manner. We're providing the underpinning digital infrastructure, the platform with the integrated journey planner, the integration of all modes, the, the, the predictions engine, the payments engines, and all the, the user accounts. And then we're opening that up to either the public operator. So if a transit operator in you know, Auckland or Christchurch or somebody else wants to be the mass operator, they can be. Or alternatively, if a private operator wants to have a go at doing it, they can be. They're using that underpinning digital infrastructure. And then over a period of time, you'll see whole new business models like subscription services and advertising for discounts and all these other things being built off the back of it, just like we did back in the early 1900s. So from a policy point of view, it's I don't think for us as a transit agency, there's much change. We're just using a different tool to do it. Well, let's let's come back to some of the other questions because now I think it's a good time to jump into sort of how things are actually evolving. Because your point of you know you know instead of a you know we should have a common shared uh, network as opposed to a series of private tolled roads, and yet that appears to be sort of exactly what's happening here. You know, um, as I alluded to at the top of the podcast, you know we've all been talking about you know mobility as a service, transportation as a service. You know, the one ring to rule them all, as as I like to call it, as Salita Reynolds you know jokingly calls my Tolkien nerddom, and um and the joke here of course is that the one ring you know, which Tolkien nerds know, you know, belong to uh, to the Dark Lord Sauron, um, it seems to be the play in play here because um, cities and public agencies, rather than building these these overarching platforms to unify everyone together, instead we have the danger of the walled gardens of, of Uber and Lyft, you know, pivoting more quickly into it. So I'm curious from your position. I mean, you know, you've watched this, you've built it. Um, you know, the only really high-functioning systems that, that exist similar to what you've built, um, besides, you know, WIM out of Finland, which gets all the press, there's also Berlin just launched uh, JLB, I believe it's called, um, which yeah. is again public sector. And um, yeah, I, I'm curious. You know, where where you know are things going wrong? Are we about to lose sort of control of this, where these things are going to end up in private hands and are going to be incompatible, and we're going to have sort of um, you know mass 
uh, oligopolies uh, in play or duopolies. Um, and, and how do we stop that from happening? You know, how do we, is it too late to build the kind of open standards that could, that could basically bring us back to the original model of this? Um, yeah, what's your perspective from there in the Antipodes? Yeah, I think open standards will get you a certain way. But for me, I, I, I do think, I don't think it's too late and it's great to see Berlin doing that piece of work. Um, it's a very interesting uh, example you give around, you know, the Ubers and the Lyfts. But I think we've got to think broader than that. I, you know, you've seen recently Airbnb talking about being a mobility provider. You know, they're the types of organizations we see playing into this space. Amazon, Facebook, Airbnb, Snapchats. You know, people don't do transport for the sake of it. People don't want a transport app. They want a, they want a, a service integrated into their lives that helps them move around. People don't move for the sake of moving. And I think for us, what we want to do is make enable that to make it very easy and have a single source of the truth around the journey planner. So if we go away and do all the heavy lifting like we have done and integrated, you know, the, all the public transit, the taxis, the e-bikes, the, the water shuttles and all the other modes that we have within our platform, for someone like Airbnb or CityMapper or anybody else can come along to New Zealand, they can subscribe to one API and they can integrate that in minutes. They don't have to go away and do all the heavy lifting. They don't have to set all the commercial agreements up. So we don't want one mass operator. We want lots of mass operators. So what our, our role is we're going to make it as easy as possible for anyone to come in to do mobility as a service. And you know consumers will make the choice on what the best channel is for them. But the underpinning information is consistent. So we're not getting to where we got to with you know the internet search engine. You know Netscape came along and you'd search for something. And then you get the result. If you look where Google's taking it now with AdWords and relevance, um, you know, you get the, the result at the top of the page, which someone's willing to pay the most for, which then creates bias in the transit system. We want to make sure that it's unbiased, fair and, you know, equal to all. Well, interesting. Well, just to jump in there, you know, has that has that proposition proven to be attractive to the sort of the private operators there? I mean, I mean, this is this was always the take. You know, if you talk to people like you know here in the states, Gabe Klein, you know, who ran Washington DOT and CityFi, you know, he and I have talked about this too. That you know that there should be this should be appealing to the private operators to have that platform, and yet they haven't. They've chosen to build their own because there's this chance to own it all. This um, you know, this sort of bias towards you know a potential monopoly over it that they can have the uh, the biggest piece of the pie, if not the entire pie. So um, so. Yeah, but so, if you, so has that proven attractive? You know, what, what private operators have come to you and said, "That's great. I'd prefer a much lower overhead, and we'll just give you, you know, your your share of it, or, and we'll just play on this playing field." Um, or have they walked away from that? So we've we've every operator that we approached and engaged with have had signed up to be in the platform, which was um, which exceeded my expectations. I was expecting about a seventy percent take up rate. That was being me being optimistic. Um, the We've got a backlog of about 18 operators who we're just working through to integrate into the platform as we've transitioned from the pilots to a fully fledged you know, product. So we're just working through that backlog at the moment. We have no shortage of interests uh, of people wanting to participate in that platform because one, it saves them money. Two, it opens up potentially new channels for them. And three, we make it very easy. So it's, it's a win-win. What we don't say to them is dictate their business models Pricing structures, um, you know, whether they want to do a user pays or a subscription model is completely up to the private sector. We don't, we, you know, we, we know our roles and responsibilities. We don't want to dictate one way or the other. We'll leave that to the consumer to decide what the, re the right model is and, you know, capitalism will play out. Great. 
Well, I want to come back to the, the privacy issues again for a second. We talked about this a bit earlier, but, um, you know, um, and apologies, apologies to readers, to listeners who are finding this a little in the weeds. It's great to have someone on here who, with the technical chops who's actually built systems like this, because I feel like all we do is talk about it. But with some of the things with the privacy issues, I've, I've heard anecdotally that, you know, that one of the reasons that no one in the States, and this is the United States thing, has been able to really build a, a, a system from the public side is because of our Freedom of Information Act requests, which the private companies, the Ubers, Lyfts, and et cetera, are afraid that if they, you know, they were to make their data available at a granularity that's useful enough, uh, that's granular enough to be useful to the system, it would then be opened up to competitors. And so, and no one's found a way to really, um, you know, create enough anonymized, anonymized data that would, you know, basically protect the private operators and yet deliver value to the system. Some people, I know there was a proposal, for example, in San Francisco that they would work with the University of California, Berkeley, which would house the data. Other people have thought about universities, but FOIA made that impossible. And I'm curious how you sort of solve that and what kind of data is passed back and forth within the partners on the platform, right? I mean, for load balancing and running these systems, you know, there's a lot of, I would imagine you want to get a lot of data from the other components as well and not just provide your own as an operator into the larger platform. So um, what's, yeah, what's the appeal for them and how do you protect them? Yes. Yeah, so one of the ways that we've managed privacy at the start, we started, when we started talking to some of the more mature transport operators, you know, it was a big concern for them as storing lots of their information and doing God knows what with it. What we decided to do is, you know, take a serverless computing approach. So what we do is we stream the, the transport operator's information and we store information by exception, very limited information by exception, by the way. So at no point are we putting lots of their data at rest, which can then, you know, get into the hands of their competitors and so on. Um, it's very simple things like origin, destination, and it's a taxi. I couldn't tell you who the taxi company is. Um, that's not my my business to know that type of stuff. We just know that taxis are being moved in a certain percentage from one area of the city to the next city, which allows us to understand demand. I don't need to know which are the successful ta taxi companies and which aren't the successful, successful taxi companies. So we've got to learn a way of live streaming it and storing information by perception. That's really important, I believe. And that's why we've been quite successful because we remove a lot of that privacy element, even just from a business point of view. You know, if, if I was a, a commercial transit operator or a ride-sharing company or any of them, I'd be quite nervous about government storing all my movement data that I'm generating. And the same goes for the user. One of the things we did with the applications is the user's accounts actually store on the edge out on the mobile phone. So we don't centrally store users' information. It's stored on their phone. If they delete the app off the phone or they log out from the application, their information's gone. We don't keep a residual record of, of, of historic users because we don't need to. And frankly, um, we don't want to be storing that information. We want to provide an integrated service for the customer where they can book and pay for their transport choices with nothing more. Great. Well, I also want to come back to the standards piece here as well, because that's the, I think the other sort of big piece of this besides privacy is, is that a lot of the standards that to create such a system from the public sector standpoint are missing and no one's really created them. I mean, we're still, I still go to conferences and people are still talking about, you know, GTFS for, for bus data as if it were the gold standard. And GTFS is great, but it's what, five, six, seven, eight years old at this point. Um, LA, regular listeners know, is working on its own sort of mobility data specification to track, originally thought for autonomous vehicles, but maybe for scooters. And so, Martin, I'm curious. You know, what what kind of what are the what what pieces of the stack or what plumbing 
um, have you guys had to create or what have you found particularly useful out there for, for combining in your platform? Because there's there's entities that are like with Moval, we've had Nat Parker on here before uh, to talk mm -hmm. a bit about, you know, what Moval's done for integration with proprietary systems and open standards. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you when you see the stack that you've built and, and how, how it's evolving, you know, what's the most um, interesting pieces and what, what can listeners uh, find and, and take home with them, I suppose? Yeah, um, the mobility is itself, in itself is very exciting, but actually from a technology point of view, it's really quite boring. You hit the nail on the head. A lot of it's integration, integrate into booking engines and the, and the availability to query them and get results back for prices, ETAs and, and journeys. So how we really set up is the standards is a really great one because that, they were the two questions that we started with at the start, remember, policy and standards. What I find with standards, and you know, from my experience in the intelligent transport system space, there's this particular standard called TC204, which it seems to be we've been talking about it for so long, it's no really longer relevant. I think the best way of working out a standard is actually prove that it works. So you've just got to get out there and build things that are scalable, easy to understand, and, and actually build a purpose of what you're actually trying to deliver. And that's really what we've been doing with the pilot. So we, we believe we've been building the standards for some of these things. And there's now a few companies internationally that we're working with. You know, GTFS does have its limitations, even for things like shuttle services. Like we do a lot around, you know, minibuses or microtransit and, you know, ski fields and things. GTFS doesn't really work for that. So we had to kind of build our own one and then make that available for the, the scheduling for the, you know, on-demand shuttles, school buses and ski shuttles and the like. So we've got that in place. All of the booking and the fare rules and the costs literally what we do is we go and query the provider's booking system and get a response back then add it to another response if it's a multimodal journey and then give the total outcome of that cost so really what we do here is it's an aggregation platform over the top of systems that already exist a little bit like you know the expedias of the world who go so, away and totally. you know, it's, it's also incredibly relevant given who the current CEO of Uber is and what his last job was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly right. And I, I said this as soon as uh, I remember meeting with Uber a while back when we were starting this. And I think for me, it's absolutely where they've got to try and go to and they will go there if they're allowed to go there. The question is, is what's sustainable um, for cities and what the best outcome for cities are. It's, it's really down to, you know, people's behaviors, well, that, that's a great point to pivot there, mentioning that, given the fact that, you know, what we've seen in the last couple of years with the data about, you know, rising congestion from, you know, from uh, ride-hailing services and, and in general. And I, I'm curious, you know, again, for, for readers who are not familiar with the intricacies of New Zealand transport policy, I'm curious, you know, what, what, what you know, mentioned dynamic, you know, uh, road pricing at the sort of top of the podcast and some other future policies that haven't been implemented yet. But I'm curious about the, the mood and the tenor and about sort of some of the more interesting policies that, um, that New Zealand is pushing ahead with or where you sort of see it going next. Because, you know, here stateside, you know, New York and LA seem finally poised to perhaps move ahead with congestion pricing and some other sort of progressive policies. But it sounds like you guys are thinking way ahead of us on that. Oh, um, I'd say in some areas and probably not so in others. I think the only, the, the, I think one of the things I find quite ironic is um, everybody seems to be looking to everybody else sometimes. Like we, I was introduced to someone from our own business the other day and they said, you need to go and look at what these guys are doing in Scotland. And um, we were like, oh, yeah, we've been advising those guys in Scotland for the last 12 months. So that's, you know, we are doing some work around smarter pricing. Um, have we landed at all? Absolutely not. Have we still got questions to answer? Yes. I don't think anyone's truly landed all the questions. If we were, we'd be very wealthy. Um, 
but we believe we've, we're you know we're working towards some good outcomes and for me i think from a high level design point of view is we've got to make the the user experience of driving a motor vehicle comparable to any other type of mobility user experience so how you pay to use it um, rather than paying, you know, we pay license fees here. You know, you've got to make it to things like pay per kilometer driven, a user pays model like you would do using a, you know, a ride share, a scooter or, you know, a public transport and the ability to pay for that service using that same account. Because that's when you can really start to drive modal shift, you know, incentivize people to move for different modes of transport. A good example is in urban areas, I think of one of the challenges we have is if you think about travel demand management, is, you know, previously a great travel demand management tool is, you know, you whack the cost of car parking up into cities so high that people don't bring their cars into the cities anymore. But then, you know, with, with the growth of the Ubers, the Lyfts and the Olas and the others of this world, people now, you know, use ride sharing. And we've seen some of the early indications of how that's having an impact on urban areas, particularly in downtown San Francisco and the Oakland area. The challenge is, is that TDM tool that we have of increasing the cost of car parking isn't really fit for purpose for the Ubers and the Lyft. They don't want to park their cars. Their job is to maximize their revenue and drive around the cities all day, every day. So how do you create, you know, tools that will actually allow that to work and, you know, add value to the city? Because they are both great user experiences. It's just like, you know, eating too much cake, eat too much of it, and it's not good for the city. It's not good for you as a health. You've got to get the balance right. You know, one of the things I think is going to be really valuable in the future of mobility is curbside access. And that's where these mobility platforms really start to come in is, you know, in the future, and this is not policy, this is just a thought out of my head. Why wouldn't you have an area where you can dynamically sell off curbside access? So if you want to get dropped off on California Street at, you know, 9 a.m. in the morning, it's going to cost you maybe $2 because of the, you know, the impact of that on the transport system. If you want to get dropped off somewhere a little bit quieter, you know, at 10.30, you may pay even less. If you want to get dropped off at a designated pickup pick and drop-off location, you know, you may not pay anything or you may even get a certain level of subsidy from it. And I think that's how cities need to use these mobility platforms as actuators to drive the behaviors that they want for their cities rather than just sit back and letting it be a free-for-all. Oh, that's totally on its way. I mean, I you know, that's uh, beyond theory. There's at least two startups working on that now. One is Cord, uh, which is building the Curbs API for managing that. And then the other is uh, a few seats away from me right now. I'm coming to you sort of live from uh, from UrbanX, Mini's uh, startup accelerator here in Brooklyn, where one of their last cohort members was a startup called ClearRoad, where they're trying to build exactly that kind of piece of the stack. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, what you're describing there is, is, uh, is practically conventional wisdom in, in our tiny subset. Um, we only have a few minutes left. We have about four or five minutes left of this. And so I, I want, I'd be remiss if I didn't get to another, I think, interesting, unique wrinkle of, of sort of the New Zealand mobility ecosystem, which is the fact that, you know, the government made some news last year, especially when I was right around when I was visiting that, you know, that, um, you know, it's, it's made itself very hospitable at the federal level towards the sort of testing and eventual deployment of, of unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, EVTOLs and others. And, um, you know, regular listeners of this podcast series know that's a, a minor obsession of ours here at LA Commotion. So I'm curious, I know this is beyond your, your direct uh, ballywick, Martin, but I, I'm curious about what already you've sort of seen or thought about in terms of the challenges of managing, you know, three-dimensional transit layer uh, in the sky and, and sort of, you know, approaches to regulation or, or light touch at the beginning and how, how that might get deployed. Because um, I think, you know, Ze New Zealand and, and is one of a handful of governments that's seriously thinking about this at a, at a federal level, not just sort of local municipalities. 
Yeah, that's right. And and it's great that, uh, you know, Ministry of Transport, Civil Aviation and others are doing a, a great job on, on leading some of the way on that. Um, for us, we think there's a great opportunity for New Zealand. We have, you know, a lot of um, open airspace. And it's, you know, from a, a policy and regulatory point of view, it's a very friendly place to come and work. We, we work very much alongside um, new startups and even and established companies to, um, you know, remove the barriers for them and try and be as helpful as we can to allow them to safely bring their products to the market. I think we also have some tools where we can actually look at, you know, some of the integration around that. So, you know, what does the future of the, you know, the drone aircraft, you know, con- command and control system look like? Cities are going to need them and they're going to need to be, you know, integrated into these mobility platforms they're going to need to be integrated into civil aviation and there's you know a few companies looking at that already and um you know obviously we're going to have to start to look at how we can provide suitable areas for these devices as they come to market where they can you know safely land and safely um you know allow people to board them you know top of all multi-story car parks those types of places you know are, are really interesting places where we start to look at but it is a very important piece and it's very exciting for some, but it's not a golden bullet to transit. I mean, for me, it's just another choice for people. I don't think the mass population are going to be flying around in, in VV, EV tolls anytime soon. Um, I'm excited by them personally as a, a person that has a private pilot's license. You know, I love flying. But really, as a government, as a transport agency, we're really looking at giving people access to multimodal choices and helping them move around in, in a safe and efficient manner. manner. Are we going to go away and, you know, chuck a load of money behind EV tolls? Not specifically for those transport outcomes that we're looking for, but from a research and development fund around New Zealand, I think it's a fantastic idea. And as soon as they become available and licensed, we'd love to integrate them into our, you know, mobility ecosystem. Yeah, well, just as a last thought on that, is is it given any thought, or I mean, can we even imagine? Is it possible to to meld them into, you know, what does a tra- what does a transit oriented uh, development look like around these kinds of things? Can you weld them into a multimodal service? I mean, that's certainly my fear. And thinking about them, that you know, that they might that it, you know, that a widespread adoption might lead to you know massive sprawling development and hiving it off into sort of a siloed own platform. I mean, Igor Sarkorsky himself wrote about this, I think, you know, in the Atlantic, you know, 75 years ago, imagining, you know, that we'd live hundreds of miles outside Manhattan and Greyhound helicopter buses would come pick us up and deliver us to Manhattan. Um, so, yeah, I'm curious about how you're sort of thinking about melding is into the larger system. We definitely have to meld it into the wider system. So we have to make it feel like it's just another transport choice. And if it delivers the transport outcomes that we're looking for, you know, that's where, um, you know, we'd help in- incentivize it in the future. I think for me, what excites me about it is, you know, we, we hear a lot about house, house house prices in urban areas. You know, Auckland's a very expensive place to buy properties. We're very geograph- geographically constrained, just a little bit like the Bay Area. You know, it, it, it's a game changer for if you look at, you know, Auckland CBD with, you know, if I look at the Lilium Jet and their specifications, those guys would get out to the Coromandel in about 22 minutes. Um, today, that's a three-hour drive. And the, the Coromandel has abundance of land, cheap land, um, so I do think there's some good opportunities there. Yes, you will get more urban sprawl, but, you know, for a city that's growing very quickly and, you know, there's very aggressive growth targeted for Auckland over the next 20 years uh, as part of the Auckland plan, the more space that we can get within 30 minutes commute time of the CBD is a great outcome for, for New Zealanders. It's just uh, how many of them are going to be able to access those services. I'd love a flying minibus, you know, particularly where I live, but... Um, 
I think we have some you know, more immediate challenges on the ground that we've got to get right. We've got to make public transport a premium product and we've got to make active transport a premium product, you know, walk lane, cycling and scooters and, and actually move to increase single vehicle occupancy um, from where we're at today, about 1.4 persons per vehicle up to two people per vehicle where we can. That's really where we, were going to, we, we really want to focus on. Yeah, well, I'll say you're, it's fascinating to me how your side of the Pacific Rim is really sort of doing all the leading the way in all these interesting experiments. Today, I was just reading about you know Singapore is already going to live fire testing of Volvo autonomous buses, you know, and thinking about autonomous mass transport and what that could do really for you know lowering costs of operation and providing you know more service. Um, really interesting stuff. Um, you know, only about ten hours flight time from you, but you know it still feels like That's it's right. in your backyard. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead, please. They're doing some fantastic work. I really like how they came across the problem is, you know, it wasn't just innovation for the sake of innovation. Singapore has a real issue getting bus drivers to drive the buses in Singapore. Um, so they decided to, to make public transport a reliable, convenient service that was, you know, the bus would turn up when you want it to turn up and there wasn't driver shortages. They decided back in 2017, I think, um, maybe a bit earlier, to make investments into localized technology companies who were focused on autonomous buses. And by 2021, they've got a challenge in place, but, you know, they want them out on the road commercially in 2021 and scale. So I think that's, it's really fantastic. It's problem led. We're not just messing around with things because we think it's fun. They're really trying to solve a problem for Singapore. And I, I really like that because it means they have a vision. Yeah, I mean, public sector innovation and effective public-private partnerships. Who would have imagined? Um, Certainly not us over here. Um, Well, with that, we're out of time. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You need to get back to your vacation, I'm sure. Um, And yeah, for listeners, thank you so much. It's been another fun episode getting into really the weeds here with Martin on uh, on building mobility as a service systems. And um, yeah, look forward to coming back to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us, Martin. Cheers. Thanks a lot. (laughs) 